0: I had always heard that Canadian healthcare was
1: broken, and I had no idea just how broken. Robin Doolittle is an investigative journalist with The Globe. She and reporter Tom Cardoso were looking into the healthcare system and where it went wrong during the pandemic.
0: Tom and I started this story with the goal of trying to understand hospital capacity. Why is it that a province the size of Ontario with 14 million people can be completely thrown into crisis with a few hundred or few thousand extra unexpected sick people?
1: Our healthcare is a point of pride for many Canadians, but healthcare workers, especially nurses, are quitting from burnout, and the sixth wave of COVID isn't helping. Experts have said we can't put all the blame on the pandemic though. There's so many different facets that are playing into
0: this. But this one physician that we spoke to said something that just made it all kind of click to me. He said, Canada doesn't have a comprehensive public health care system. It never has. What it has is an insurance program.
1: Today, Robin and I talk through why it's so hard for Canadians to face the flaws in our healthcare system, and why these issues go back to the way our system was designed. I'm Anika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Robin, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. How would you characterize the way that most Canadians think of, of our healthcare system?
0: I think Canadian healthcare is a point of immense national pride for people in this country. And that mythology, that love that people have for universal healthcare, kind of clouds a lot of, of their perspectives around it. They're not able to see the many, many pitfalls. I certainly did not understand the pitfalls before working on this story. And I think a big part of that is we're next to a country that is extremely dysfunctional when it comes to health care and especially access to health care. And that is a huge progress barrier for Canadians.
1: So you just completed this investigation with, with Tom Cardoso that looks at a lot of the major problems with the Canadian healthcare system. Let's look at an example. So let's say someone has been in a car accident. What are the different points of care that, that they would access?
0: So this was an example that was given in the last big federal review of health care to illustrate just how dysfunctional our system is. So if a person is in a car accident, they're probably going to need acute care in a hospital. They are going to see their primary doctor. They're going to need inpatient and outpatient therapy. They may need psychological services and help. They may need dental work. They may need assistive devices. There's medicines. There's rehab. There's physio. All of these different things in most parts of the country are are siloed services with their own budgets, management, goals. There is no integration here. And you can imagine the impact on a patient having to navigate all of this.
1: What would be the difficulties for that patient then?
0: You're gonna to have to explain your story over and over again, having to navigate this system on your own. And I should say within those silos, some of those are public and some of those are private. So you're probably gonna to have to navigate your own private insurance or paying out of pocket for some of these services. And the other thing is just the imagine the overhead and waste that's happening as all of these different silos are gonna to have to start, you know, all the admin work to intake a new patient, to transfer files to catch up on what someone else has already done. It's just a system that is worse for patient and extremely expensive and wasteful.
1: Why is our healthcare system like this then? Uh, when
0: Medicare was passed, all it did was change where the bill was sent. Medicare was not focused on keeping the population healthy, keeping people out of hospital. It made no effort to integrate all of the different healthcare systems across the country and this is why it doesn't work properly even calling it a healthcare system is tricky because because healthcare is a product of the provinces there are 13 different systems not one and within those systems there are more systems there are hospital based systems there are regional systems then there's pharmacy care there's long term care there's primary care the list goes on and on and they all operate as their own little entities in most parts of the country
1: You went back to when medicare was first adopted there why was it set up in this way to start with
0: so it's this very famous story tommy douglas when he was a young child six years old new immigrant to canada he developed a bone infection after falling and cutting his knee and his family didn't have the money to pay for proper care and the doctors said we're going to need to amputate your leg And it was only because a sympathetic surgeon took pity on him and said, You know, if you allow some medical students to observe this surgery, I can save your leg. And Tommy Douglas grew up to become the premier of Saskatchewan. And he had this deeply felt principle that no one should go bankrupt because they require medical care. And access to proper health care should not be based on your ability to pay. And he passed the first hospital insurance program in 1947. And this went on to become kind of the groundwork for national Medicare, which was passed in in various pieces, but I I think it's usually attributed
1: into the 60s. I think that medical care is so important that it ought not to have a price tag on it. I think that we have come to the place where medical care, like education, ought to be available to every citizen, irrespective of their financial state.
0: So what's key here is what Tommy Douglas's legislation did was ensure hospital services and it was later added physician services. This was uh, I mean hugely important of course it was the first universal insurance program in North America that was passed. But if you were doing it again today you wouldn't organize it that way. You know, when we decide what types of of healthcare services are covered by uh, Medicare, it's not based on what makes the most sense or what's the most important. It all stems back to these pieces of legislation that were passed decades and decades and decades ago.
1: We've talked a lot about what we're doing wrong here, I guess. How can we fix this? Are there solutions that experts are looking at? I should say
0: first solution is we have to fix the the nursing crisis. and. The staffing crisis is being driven by a few things. One is nurses are just completely burned out. They've been working short-staffed with this fear of catching the virus. Every time someone gets, gets sick, they, there's isolation. At one point in the hospital network in Hamilton, 761 staff and physicians were in isolation because of having COVID or having a direct exposure during the Omicron wave. So there's huge wow. staffing shortages across the country. Yeah. So that's kind of you know the most immediate thing. But big picture, long-term things, there's these kind of four areas. And they are integrate the silos, find a way to bring the system together so that the various pieces are working together. And the second is uh, addressing the money problem and how money flows through the system. So doctors and hospitals are paid in different ways and with different budgets no one in the system is compensated for patient outcomes, which I think is a, a huge gap. So mm-hmm. a- addressing how money flows through the system. And then there is um, utilizing better data and performance indicators. And the last one was looking at how private investment could supplement our public system. And I'm reluctant to even say the P word because I know (laughs) people are listening right now and are freaking out about that. And for understandable reasons, I think I just want to really emphasize that I think Canadians are conditioned to hear the P word and immediately think of the United States
1: and no one is talking about that. Why is that, though? Why does this topic of privatization tend to hijack conversations about healthcare reform? Why do we react so viscerally, I guess, to that idea?
0: I think because we have this example in the United States of people losing everything because they were diagnosed with cancer. I I personally know someone that went bankrupt after a cancer diagnosis. It's A terrifying situation. And I certainly, before working on this story, did not understand what having private dollars in healthcare actually meant in a Canadian context. Like, doctors pointed to the UK and Australia, for example, both of which have universal coverage. Um, In the United Kingdom, there are about 500 private hospitals that offer specialized services such as you know, gastric bypass surgery or fertility uh, treatments, colonoscopies, cancer screening. And they're a very small piece of that system, but it's there and it, it eases a bit of the strain. Some of the doctors we spoke with and academics and experts pointed to the Shouldice Clinic in, in the GTA, which does hernia repair. It's a private for-profit hospital that is on contract with the Ontario system. So it's still... Um, the public that is using it and they're not paying for it. I think the other thing I just didn't really appreciate, and maybe most Canadians don't know, but 30% of our healthcare is privately funded right now. So we, again, we don't have a universal system. You know, if you look at mental health, for example, of how silly our system is right now, that we don't cover mental health services, which is a huge strain on the public health care system and to society, to the economy. Um, basically, what our strategy right now is is if people show up at a, at a hospital in distress, then they're admitted and it's hugely expensive, obviously. But then you kind of send them back out into the world with no support and no treatment for their their medical condition. And it's it's kind of akin to like your basement flooding and you just are bailing out the water, but never actually spending the money to fix the leak.
1: Has our healthcare system always been like this? Or was there a point where things kind of changed and started to, to go down a path that wasn't as effective?
0: In the early 80s and early 90s, there were two recessions. The federal government is taking on huge amounts of debt and As a result, they're reducing the transfer payments to the provinces, and provinces are responding with cuts. They're they're cutting everything, but they're including healthcare, and in some cases, big cuts. In Alberta, Ralph Klein cut nearly 20%. There's mass nursing layoffs. Thousands of nurses lost their jobs. It became common for hospitals to hire nurses on precarious contracts or part-time work. The number of positions in medical schools was capped, which... All of this is, is leading up to a doctor shortage, a nursing shortage. This is the beginning of hallway medicine, long surgery, wait lists and backlogs, ER wait times. These problems were all created decades ago as a result of policies that were
1: implemented in the 1990s. I want to circle back to a couple of points that you made when we started talking about the potential solutions here. So you'd said that a lot of the way that the system is designed right now is not really centering good outcomes for patients. And then you'd also mentioned that data can be used to help this. Can you explain what you mean by those two points?
0: So I spoke with this one doctor in Quebec who um, up until recently, she was running emergency rooms in the province and uh, was overseeing a modernization project. And she shared this one anecdote from the early days of the pandemic, and it was a hospital in Quebec that was really struggling during one of the COVID waves. And when the ministry was looking at the hospital uh, statistics, they noticed that they were intaking between 5 and 10% more patients than other hospitals in the area. And this is an indication to them that they're probably admitting too many people. When they did a deep dive into uh, the hospital in general, they noticed that Overall, this hospital was keeping patients longer than other hospitals. So there are nationally available statistics about the length of time a person should stay in hospital if they have, say, a baby. This hospital was one or two days over in a lot of different areas. And by just making those length of stay adjustments, they were able to free up enough capacity to weather the wave. Of course, there are going to be cases that stay longer. It's not about adjusting to patient need, but there's a lot to be gained by not just going by your gut and going with data. Oh, like this is the appropriate amount of time for a typical patient with no complications to stay for this amount of time. And sort of implementing that more nationally could free up a lot of capacity.
1: Hmm. Now that we're talking about these potential solutions, let's go back to this example that we looked at earlier on about if someone got into a car accident. What would their experience in the healthcare system look like under a a better integrated system that's maybe taking into consideration some of these, these points that you're mentioning?
0: So one thing I heard about quite a bit was this bundled model. And that's where you get one envelope of money and it follows the patient around. So in this hypothetical example of someone with a car who's been through a car accident, There would be an amount of money and all of the system would be integrated. So the person's moving under the same umbrella um, to to deal with all of the different aspects of it, their hospital, their follow-up with their their family doctor, rehab, mental health or psychological services, any assistive devices they may need, medicine. It's this set amount. And if the person develops complications and has to go back into a hospital, um, there's no more money so the institution would take a hit for this. And the idea there is you're incentivizing better care. I think it's important to also just underscore that there is no perfect system. You can't, you know, get on a plane and go to a country and say, this is it. There are pros and cons to everything. But I think the message that was delivered over and over again is what we have is very bad. And we need to wake up to that and and be open to trying new things. The status quo cannot continue. At some point, COVID is not gonna be the headline story. Our capacity crisis is going to continue. Healthcare is still broken. Let's take a minute and see what's out there, what could work here, and try some things.
1: Robin, you you just mentioned, of course, the impact that COVID has had on our healthcare system, really, really pushing us to the brink these last couple of years. We've been thinking about how the system functions or maybe doesn't function as well. Could this, I guess, be the right moment then to make significant changes to the systems?
0: I think the moment to fix our healthcare system was probably 20 years ago because so many of the issues that we see today started decades ago. COVID has presented an opportunity for us to once again seize this moment, this very necessary moment, and have the courage to make big changes. Canadians don't want to hear that our healthcare system is broken because there is this immense and understandable pride in having universal coverage. But as one doctor explained, if you have pride in this system, criticize it to make it better, care about it enough to make it better. We spoke with Dr. David Naylor, who chaired the last big federal investigation of healthcare, as well as the National SARS Commission. And he said, you know, this pandemic has been a stress test of our healthcare system, and it has not fared that well. And we need to take this moment to make it better. The worst thing we could do is walk away and leave it as it is.
1: Robin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today about your investigation. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show, and Michal Stein edited this episode. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.